Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money Show. And as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using Nidig, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory governance and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out Nidig as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. Okay, guys, we are back on the What Is Money show. I'm sitting down again with Mr. Max Hillebrand. And we are continuing our exploration of Murray Rothbard's masterpiece, frankly, uh, The Ethics of Liberty, where he lays out in detail the libertarian philosophy uh, and what a legal system and world would look like uh, premised on such a philosophy. And today we're going to be venturing into uh, a series of new topics, the first of which is this concept of an eye for an eye, uh, which I believe comes from Hammurabi's code. Is that where he got it? It's a good question, but I, I guess it's a very old principle. Um, for sure, the Bible talks about it to some extent and probably earlier myths as well. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure to where to trace exactly that, that phrase. Uh, but but interestingly, as Rothbard points out, the more accurate phrase, uh, uh, as coined by Walter Block, actually, uh, is two teeth for a tooth. Right? Uh, uh, mm. Let's maybe dive down a, a bit later onto how that actually arrives. But the, the general argument that he makes here is uh, that punishment ought to be proportional to the crime. Mm. And that is... Well, in, in today's context, a very controversial statement, uh, even though probably in, in historical context, that used to be the common sense. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious what, what you think about that, that difference of proportionality uh, to the other uh, contexts. Yeah, yeah. The, I think the proportionality was interesting because you typically, I think the intuitive response would be if someone has stolen what whatever a hundred dollars from you that the proper retribution would be one hundred dollars paid back to them but the point is like if you actually stop to think about it if someone just returned the one hundred dollars then the situation would be neutral there'd be no penalty inflicted on the thief because he was just returning the hundred dollars he originally stole so the the it seems like when you really stop to think about it the proper punishment would be that the thief returned the one hundred dollars and then incur a penalty of say $100, which I think it to your is to your point of this two teeth for one tooth. Yes, exactly. That's uh, and that's the conclusion of a praxeological argument based on individual sovereignty and property rights. And so the, the and the 
the way to get there is numerful. We need to answer a couple important questions. First is who, who has a right to punishment? Like who can actually in, inflict violence on the perpetrator uh, in order to get some sort of retribution, right? So should even anyone have that right is, mm -hmm. is the, the first question. And then the second one is who should have that right? Uh, and um, here Rothbard lines out the, uh, the, the two basic options, which is for one, that some external party uh, has that right inherently, right? So for example, the priest class or, or the ruling class has the right to punish all the, the criminals uh, in, in the realm, uh, re regardless whether or against whom these criminals have actually inflicted punish or, or suffering. Um, and that's very different to the well starting point of praxeology, and that is that humans act, and that we are. This is a fundamentally individualistic uh, starting point. Mm. That here again, the right to punishment does not belong to anyone magically. It it belongs solely to the victim. The mm. victim has the right uh, to fight back uh, and to defend himself. Uh, and that is, uh, again, merely the expression of individual sovereignty. Right? The, the non-aggression principle uh, goes hand in hand with natural self-defense. Mm -hmm. uh, this, this is one and the same. Uh, so what Rothbard lies out here is that contrarily to that kind of elitist or, or, or collectivist mindset of someone else has the right uh, to punish, mm -hmm. he says only the victim has the right to punish. And the victim may give away that right uh, selectively to someone else if so contractually agreed, uh, mm -hmm. like, for example, in a will. Oh, interesting. Okay, so, uh, yes, because this is where he said if a victim puts in their will, if I am murdered, then you can seek retribution, right? They're basically giving that right to someone else. Um, is it so what in the libertarian philosophy, then it sounds like this would go against the traditional monopoly on violence of the government, unless you had consent of the governed, right? Which I guess is kind of what Western civilization is somewhat premised on that we're abdicating some of our ability to uh, pursue retribution from being victimized to the government or legal system that then does it on our behalf. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, something like that. But I, I, I think what, what Rothbard's argument here is that this scenario of, of trying to shift away the responsibility of punishment is as contradictory as trying to shift away your responsibility for action. Right, this mm. um, it it is inherent in the property rights that if someone breaks them, then you get to take the property back and punish the victim. Right, this mm. is this this goes kind of hand in hand. So I I would say that his argument is that some monopoly of violence uh, claiming the monopoly of punishment um, is is inherently evil. Like uh, there mm. there cannot be a consent of the governed, so to say. Uh, as the state is by definition acting against their will. That's interesting because I know he he mentions in the book that the in, the individual human will, your willpower, if you will, or your your ability to decide and act, is the inalienable property. Right? It's an in, inalienable human right because it's it's natural. I can't give away my decision making capacity to you. 
Therefore, it's not not alienable, meaning not exchangeable. Unlike other forms of property, you know, your car or your house, that's that's an alienable form of property that you can trade with others. So is he making the point here that then you can you cannot actually give away that right to seek retribution, but you could contract with someone else? You know, if you say you were robbed and you didn't want to go out and physically take retribution yourself, you could contract with another party to go and do it on your behalf. I I would say that the starting point of our argument is that the individual has the responsibility of punishment. Mm. Um, And, uh, but he does not have to be the one that actually acts out the punishment, right? Uh, You can hire specialists uh, to take care of of your responsibilities, Mm. right? And if if that uh, contracting service uh, is is like well defined in a contract and, and paid for, then this is a just acquisition of the, the, the right or the responsibility to punish the victim uh, away from, uh, sorry, to punish the criminal away from the victim to whatever service provider he chooses. Uh, but this fundamentally has to come from the consent of the victim. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the idea of the government is that despite the consent of the victim, uh, the government cronies get to enact the punishment. Uh, right. And even if the victim um, potentially does not even want the criminal to get punished, because right. that's one of the other critical aspects to, to Rothbard's theory here, is that what we're defining here is an ethical maximum punishment. Right. Okay, so this is how much do you actually have a right to now violate the property of this of the criminal. And there is the general right that you can take up to, you know, two teeth for, for a tooth. So you take proportionally the same amount that he took away from you. And of course you get back what's yours. Um, but this is, but here individual morality can differ. Humans can, can have a moral code that uh, shows them the, um, not gratitude, but uh, you know, to forgive sins, uh, mm-hmm. to, uh, there's a good name for it. Grace I, I forget. or... Yes, the, the, the grace or the mercy, exactly. Ah, mercy. Uh, people can choose to be merciful uh, mm-hmm. and not punish the thief. But but here again, nobody should be forced to be merciful. Right. right? Uh, the, the, the act of mercy has to be a, a freely chosen act. Right? Mm-hmm. The, the victim truly needs to forgive the criminal uh, and, and then say, okay, I will not punish you. And that can easy example be, you know, a starving person on the street uh, steals some meat at the butcher store, right? Sure, the, the butcher owner can now punish the thief, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, but maybe he realizes that, hey, he's a poor bastard and has no food. So this is going to feed his kids for another week. Mm-hmm. It's all right. Uh, let, let there be mercy. Uh, but this is, again, a, a fundamentally individual choice and, and should not be taken away uh, from the victims. Yeah, this was something else I found interesting in the book that the, once again, the victim in their will could even say that if I am murdered, you know, show mercy on the attacker. So you, whereas in the current legal system, if someone is murdered, the legal system will just pursue the murderer, right? They'll, they'll prosecute the murderer no matter what. But the victim in the libertarian, under the libertarian philosophy actually has the absolute right to choose about, you know, he's the one that has been wronged. So he decides what, if any punishment and or mercy should be um, exhibited to the, to the criminal. Exactly. Yes. And 
this is, you know, people say this is such a primitive approach. Mm. Maybe it is, uh, or barbaric even, um, uh, at least on the face of it. But, you know, you've got to realize that when dealing with crime and punishment, it's always a shitty situation. Right? Mm-hmm. This is never going to be a mutually beneficial outcome because harm was done. Right? So right. we now need to deal with the situation. Uh, and Rothbard nicely lays out all the other options that we have uh, to uh, this proportional punishment theory uh, to, for the victim. Uh, and, and that would be for one, of course, that the victim has no right to punishment, but some elite class has. And uh, that also means that the victim, not just can he, does he, not just does he give away the, the choice of what should happen with the criminal, mm-hmm. he also does not receive any actual payback. You know, nowadays, uh, the state decides which criminals to pursue, regardless if there were victims involved or not. There are numerous people in jail for victimless crimes. Mm-hmm. And then even when there is a victim, right, the, the victim doesn't get any major payback, right? The, the, uh, the, the criminal doesn't have to give directly back to the, the right. victim. He has to give back to the state. Yeah. And then he gets put into this prison facility, which even costs tax money to support. Yes. So, so again, actually, the, the victims have to pay for the criminal's hospitality right. in prison, you know, for as long as he's in prison. And the longer the punishment is, the more costly it is for the victims. Yes. And so here we have this, this very huge skew of victims not getting justice at all. Yeah, and that's the racket, it seems to me, because... So the state is prosecuting the criminal, the criminal who wronged the victim, transgressed against the property of the victim. But then the state is the one receiving the retribution, whether, you know, monetary or or whatever. If they confiscate property from the aggressor, the state keeps it. It does not does not um, um, reconstitute the victim. And then further to your point, (laughs) If they keep the aggressor in jail, that is funded through tax collections, which are their own form of theft, right? So they're stealing from the population, which includes the victim, right? The victim's a taxpayer, presumably as well, to now incarcerate the aggressor. So um, yeah, it seems very asymmetric in benefit of the state overall, right? There, it's kind of like a heads, state wins, tells, everyone else loses situation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and it goes further, right? Because another of these modern punishment theories is, um, I forgot the name again, uh, like uh, uh, reintegration, right? That the Mm. the criminals eventually have to reintegrate back into society. And that as soon as they are capable to do that, that then their punishment ought to stop. Mm. Uh, But this is, again, very weird because, well, who's deciding when this reintegration process has succeeded? Well, that's just going to be a a board of bureaucrats, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, again, the victim has no choice in this. This is handed off to some some other person. Uh, And and further, it ruins that proportionality aspect of of punishment. Mm -hmm. So, let's assume we have a, a child rapist and murderer, some heinous crime, right? And he commits that. And on the other side, we have that, that poor man who stole from the butcher to feed his children. Right? Uh, both are crimes. Both mm. were, were violating property rights. Yet what ought to happen to them? And with this reintegration theory, that just means that uh, if, for example, that murderer uh, 
confesses afterwards and, and says, okay, no, I, I realize it was wrong and I will never do it again. And I'm going to be an uplifting law abiding citizen from now on. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, then he maybe gets released out of prison after a week, you know, how long it ever takes him to reintegrate. Mm-hmm. But if, if the other hand, uh, you know, that, that poor family man uh, has, you know, some personal moral justifications for his murder, uh, sorry, for his theft, because he wanted to feed his children. Of course, he, he did violate property rights nonetheless, but there's some somewhat decent excuse for it. And he refuses to reintegrate and to submit to that board of bureaucrats, uh, deeming whether or not he's worthy for society again. Uh, right. And then maybe he gets stuck in prison for years, maybe his lifetime, because he right. refuses to integrate according to what the bureaucrats say. Yeah, so it, what I'm reminded of here is just that this system of modern laws, we're injecting a degree of arbitrariness into the decision-making process when in fact, it is the victim who should be able to decide because it was their property that was transgressed against, right? They, again, if we're taking this individualistic um, sovereign actor viewpoint that the decision should rest with he who is affected, he or she who is affected. But we've abstracted that into this state model, and in in with that abstraction comes these come these layers of bureaucracy that distort the will and intent and incentives, and just create uh, a lot of problems. Frankly, um, and this is not something that most people think deeply about, and perhaps that's why some of this sounds a bit medieval and archaic because it actually is right. This these are practices that were used for hundreds or thousands of years and have only recently been distorted. You know, we think that we've maybe transcended these old practices or, or ways of handling um, conflicts over property, but we've really just injected a model that creates a lot of distortion, frankly. Yes, exactly. Uh, that that really is how it is. And um, it's, it's not, I mean, many people think that we live in this continuous uh, progress of society, you know, that it always goes upwards and onwards. And maybe in some uh, level of analysis, that's true. But uh, if your starting point is individual sovereignty and property rights, uh, then then clearly the today's injustices done in prisons uh, is, is staggering. Right. Um, because, again, individuals are sovereign. Even criminals have rights. Right? Yeah. They have, they have, they have many. <laughs> and yes. for example, the thief of a bubblegum does not give away his right to life, right? He right. gives up his right to a bubblegum because he stole that from someone else, right? So he needs to give back two bubblegums, the one he took and the one that he right. sank or that he gave away his, his right to property to in the act of theft. Basically, that's the argument. Right? Um, and it, when, when all of that just gets muddled, it's, it's almost like, yeah, there, there's, there's no longer a true price signal in uh, yes exactly that's what i was reminded of it's a distortion of i was thinking that very thing that price signal is distorted through these layers of bureaucracy but this is more like the signal of just the victim's ability to decide for themselves what to do right to seek retribution or show mercy or or what have you um and and it's also a nasty redistribution scheme right because mm. so usually if we have this punishment by proportionality then if if the victim loses something, the 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 value, the capital first shifts to to the thief because mm-hmm. he now holds the good, but he gets punished and he gets put back to the to the victim, 
not just to get even, but to even get uh, get twice the amount, right? So mm-hmm. here we have redistribution after a successful, um, uh, like, uh, yeah, after uh, getting back the property from the criminal successfully, the victim is better off. But if we have this third party retribution system, then after the aggression, the, the victim didn't get anything back, right? Uh, or maybe he only got back the stolen good, but nothing more, right? Mm-hmm. And that additional punishment went to the state. So this is a, a redistribution of capital from the victim to the thief and to the state. Um, right, right, right. And that distorts the incentives of the state, right? So now they want mm-hmm. to be, the incentive for the state would then to be increase the regulatory I guess reach and rigidity such that there are actually more crimes to prosecute because they now have a yes. revenue incentives a revenue incentive to prosecute more people. Um, yeah. and, and there I'm, you have the justification for the war of drugs uh, or or any of the other nameless victimless crimes that are being exactly where I was going to take this next is like this calls to mind this victimless crime of we'll just pick cannabis for instance. I, I forget the number. Maybe there's 2 million people incarcerated in the U.S., I think is a rough figure. Um, so, you know, there's a big cohort of prisoners that are in there for victimless crimes like possession of cannabis, right? Just possession and personal use of cannabis. This, I mean, in, I guess in the libertarian lens, there is no, that's not a crime. It's a non-crime. There's no victim, right? Whose property was transgressed against? Well, there is a victim and there is a crime, mm. but the victim is the person who is being held in prison unjustly, and uh, the criminal yes. is all the bureaucrats and prison guards who keep them under lock. Yeah, great point. And this too, it just saddles the taxpayer with additional cost, right? We're, we're, I mean, the numbers are staggering too. I think in New York, which is one of the more expensive jurisdictions I read, that it was like $100,000 per year to food to feed and shelter one of these prisoners in the, in the New York uh, penal system. That's incredible, right? For a guy that had <laughs> a plants in a bag, right? That was no victim at all. And maybe he was consuming to enjoy or whatever, but it just, I think when you just take a step back and look at it through the lens of property, right? It all comes back to property at the end of the day. It's like, who was hurt? Whose property was transgressed against? And then you see that this individual is put in jail for possessing cannabis, that that is actually the crime, right? Because now taxpayer property is being transgressed against to incarcerate this individual that perpetrated a victimless crime. Yes. And there's, you know, this whole prison system nowadays is truly messed up. And, And Rothbard provides a very interesting analysis of how to tackle the problem with strong property rights. And the, the conclusion is basically that, again, a, a petty thief, uh, for example, uh, has a, a right of free movement. He is a sovereign individual, right? Mm-hmm. And, and he can move wherever he is invited. Uh, and, of course, on his own property, on his own land. Uh, but crucially, people don't need to invite them him into, into their property, right? There's, he has no right to, trans, to trespass onto other people's property who do not want him to be there. Mm-hmm. So what will likely emerge is that... Uh, c- criminals, or uh, maybe not necessarily petty thieves, but psychopaths and serial murders, who still, ha- after their victims have been 
uh, have gotten their retributions are free men and, and can walk around freely, uh, many people will refuse them any access to their land. Uh, and, and then we have this, this uh, kind of expulsion by, by exclusion or, or non-invitation. Uh, but still, there, there will be areas that welcome known and convicted criminals, like even serial killers. Mm. Uh, uh, they might even charge a service, uh, a service fee to the criminals uh, mm. for coming into their hotel, so to say, uh, where criminals get a full service, you know, including shelter and food and entertainment, mm. uh, even though nobody else uh, likes to provide these services. Right. Um, so these kind of voluntary prisons, so to say, uh, em emerge again just out of having strong property rights uh, of all the individuals owning the land and, and the public places. That's a great point too. That so. In that scenario, a criminal would actually be disincentivized, or I guess a prospective criminal would be dissuaded from wanting to engage in crime because they know the the social cost and the financial cost if they're identified as a criminal, right? All of a sudden, they'll be shunned from certain places and service providers. They'll have to go and pay a premium at one of these places you're describing, which is kind of like a voluntary prison, perhaps. So there would be Whereas in the current system, it seems like you can perpetrate a crime, do your time, and then you're back, right? And no one can really, I guess, legally discriminate against you. In this libertarian world, if you've done a crime, then you can be discriminated against for presumably the rest of your life. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, in, in today's system, specifically with this rehabilitation, which was the word I was missing previously, mm -hmm. um, uh, you you see that there's this big narrative that uh, like businesses who uh, who do discriminate against convicted felons uh, are somehow bad because they ought right. to uh, reintegrate them, right, and be, yeah. be helpful to these men who who deserve a second chance. And you know that's an interesting individual moral perspective, but it for sure cannot be an absolute ethic. Right, that right. would again violate property rights. Yeah. Uh, and uh, as some bureaucrat class can say, now that this felon is out in the open again, you must do business with him. Right. That just means the bureaucrat owns your business. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's just there's a common theme here of just removing compulsion and coercion as much as possible. Right. I mean. It, where, okay, let me ask you that then. Where is compulsion and or coercion justified in the libertarian philosophy? It's only in the, the instances where someone has aggressed against your property, stolen something, and then you, the victim or their agents can go and coerce or compulse to get that property back? Yes, exactly. Uh, and this this is the, the crowning achievement of Rothbard, right? He builds mm. an ethic just on property rights. Mm. Uh, and he's very consistent with that. And that's super interesting. And I think one example here is promises. Right? So oh, yes. what if uh, I promise uh, to buy, uh, you know, a, a, a piece of steak from Robert's Butchery tomorrow? Mm -hmm. And then I promise, hey, tomorrow I'll be in the, sto in the store and I will get a steak from you. Okay. Yeah. Um, and what, what happens if I don't show up? Did I steal from Robert? Is, has Robert the just right to, to, uh, to aggress against me? Uh, and the answer is, is no. Uh, and uh, again, keeping your promises might be a great individual moral uh, aspect, you know, mm -hmm. to, to you know, agree to your, to your uh, pr verbal promises uh, or to fill up, uh, fulfill them. But 
there was never a actual contract and a transfer of property rights involved between Robert and me in this scenario. Right. Uh, so uh, that is the crucial difference. Where this would turn into a crime is when I walk into your store, pick up uh, your steak, right, and and uh, uh, and therefore you know take your property, yeah. which is in common customs you know associated with this is a this is an agreement that I want to transfer this steak from your property rights into mine, and in exchange I give you the price that you advertised, right? Yeah, that that is the the obvious agreement here. But when you walk out of, or when I walk out of the store without paying you, then I just took your property that you only wanted to give away in exchange for a million sats, yeah. and I didn't give you the million sats. Right. right. So then I actually stole that stake from you and owe you now two million sats. One million yes. in, for the repayment of, of the actual good that I stole, and then another million as a disincentive for me to do it in the future. Right, right, right. Yeah, th this was a very important point in the book, this distinction between promises and transfers of property, right? When you just make a promise, no property has been transferred, therefore there's no crime if the promise is broken. I think one of the examples Rothbard gave was, imagine two people uh, committing to be married, right? One, you know, A promises to marry B, B incurs a lot of expenses getting ready for the wedding. And then at the last minute, A changes their mind and says, I don't want to marry B. Does B have recourse to A, right? To compel him, him or her to marry him or her. Um, and it, you know, like when you look at it that way, clearly it doesn't make sense. You can't compel someone to marry someone else. It doesn't matter what level of expenses they incurred. Um, but, I, but I guess further to the point that the situation does change if that promise was conditional on, you know, I give you a thousand dollars now, I transferred title to property and you're promising to pay me $1,100 in a year, right? There is, if you break that promise, there is, I do have recourse because I've transferred property to you. It's not just a promise. It's a promise attached to property. And as I understand it, that's the difference. Exactly. And that's the same with debt, for example, right? When, when you go into debt, that means you get yep. money now and in exchange, you promise to pay back money in the future. Yes. But that's not an empty promise because right. you receive Bitcoin at, at day zero yes. right? uh, as payout of the loan. Um, and another interesting thing here is long-term labor contracts. Right? Mm -hmm. So let's say you get paid every month and you sign a contract for labor for the next two years. Mm -hmm. right? That's voluntary contract. That, yep. That's great. Right. Uh, and uh, let's say you do a month of work and, th and then you get paid. Mm -hmm. um, now, if if you would um, if you would have provided the month of work and the employee that sorry, the employer would not pay you, then he would have stolen from you a month right. of labor without giving you the, the money that was contractually agreed upon. Yeah. Uh, or in the other case where you get paid at the beginning of the month right, and you perform the labor afterwards, if you get paid and then you don't perform the labor, well, then obviously you stole the money, right? Because you did right. not provide the contractually agreed labor. Yeah. Um, however, the big difference is what if, so you, you work, you get paid, but then you stop working, right? So you no longer go into the next month, even though you contractually agreed upon mm -hmm. uh, to this. Now, the question is, is that theft? And here, Roth, many people would probably argue yes, because you you signed that contract committing you mm -hmm. to years of work. Mm -hmm. uh, but Rothbard argues that that no, it is actually not, uh, because the uh, let's say half month, uh, sorry, the half year of work that was still due was not yet paid for. 
Therefore, right. there was no actual transfer of property, and therefore there was no theft, right? Uh, and it, this is also his argument why why slavery is impossible. Um, right. You you cannot sign yourself into slavery yep. precisely because you will change your mind in the future, um, right? Or or in other words, that when you when you would sell yourself into slavery for whatever reason, as long as you are a happy slave and are and would agree still with the expropriation of your property in as many regards as the slave master deems necessary, mm -hmm. then that would be all right. But as soon as the slave would change his mind, even though uh, the previously signed contract, uh, the labor contract, so to say, would simply expire because right. individuals have free will yes. uh, and the, the contract would therefore be not a contract at all. Yes. Yeah. Th that was an excellent point too. He, Rothbard essentially represented that a long-term slave contract is, is, well, let's see, you can do it, right? I can go and sign myself to what XYZ Corp. I will be your slave until the end of time, right? You can work me and not pay me forever. But the moment that I change my mind about that contract, it's immediately rescindable, right? We can cancel the contract immediately because once again, your willpower or your ability to choose your human reason is inalienable. I cannot transfer my ability to choose to XYZ Corp. So the moment that I choose no longer to be a slave, the contract is immediately null and void, as I understand it. Uh, the difference would be, once again, if there was a property transfer attached to it. If I sold my labor to XYZ Corp for a million dollars, once I, if I choose to cancel that contract, I do owe them that money back plus interest, presumably. Um, and he applied this too to military service. Or he's saying, you know, clearly we have employment at will in every industry. You can walk off the job at any time because, again, your your ability to choose cannot be taken away. Um, so in that sense, desertion from the military is perfectly legal. Uh, and conscription is not, right, which is compulsory work, effectively. It's I think he called it legal slavery. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And and this is, again, a... One of the many points where there's major disagreements in, in the Austrian economic circles, so this is not really a cult. Mm. Uh, for example, here, Walter Bloch greatly differs with the position of Murray Rothbard that you just lined out. Mm. And Walter Bloch is of, is of the opinion that you can only own something if you can give it away. Mm. Right? Uh, and uh, if, if you can't really give it away, you don't really own it. Mm. You know? and, and with the same line of reasoning, um, if you cannot give away your free will, or, or the, the labor of your body uh, indefinitely, then you would not own it, right? So, so you, the fact that you own your body means that you can make the decision to go into slavery. Mm. That's his line of reasoning. Uh, and where Murray Rothbard here disagrees is that it's your free will is not something that you've acquired via homesteading or contract, right? right? Your free will is inalienable in your existence. Mm -hmm. A very similar argument to the to the uh, Declaration of Independence, um, and uh, uh, something that is inalienable can, by definition, not be given away. Mm -hmm. Right? Inalienable is it's it's inevitably linked and and tied uh, yes. to you. You you cannot give it away, um, and therefore these contracts are, are null and void. Uh, I I understand the reasoning of both arguments, but I do think that Murray Rothbard has a, a stronger foundation in his argumentation than Block here. 
Yeah, I would take issue with something being non-transferable does not mean you don't own it. You don't need to be able to give something away to own it, in my opinion, because again, to Rothbard's point, you own your body, right? Like I own, I'm the only one that can move my body, you know, turn my head, move my arms, et cetera, et cetera. I can't transfer it to others. Does that mean I don't own myself? I mean, I think that just is, is silly. Yeah. And, and again, I think Walter Block's argument makes sense as long as there's consent of the slave. Right. So, so the, the father who sells himself into slavery so that his daughter gets the money to buy medical equipment. Right. And survive, right. For yeah. Example. So long as the consent persists. Exactly. As long as the consent persists, that's a valid labor contract, so to right, say. And right, here, right. both Block and, and Rothbard would agree. Um, but yeah, the, the question is always with resource allocation uh, conflict, right? Yes. What, what if the two parties no longer agree? That's the only reason why we're doing exactly. this. Exactly. Yeah. Right? And, and there, yes, I, I think Murray is correct.